0: I recently watched the first season of Loki, and without spoiling much, I thought that the worst episode of what was an excellent season was the fourth one, during which Loki spends the entire duration of the destined-to-be-destroyed moon of Lamentis. The characters are aware of its impending destruction, but after some last-ditch shenanigans intended to buy their way to safety, they realize that there is nothing more that they can do to save themselves. Ultimately, they come to the conclusion that there is no hope, and all they can do is wait for the inevitable. Destruction is an inescapable part of life. Civilizations, like the fictional one on Lamentis, collapse. And this isn't conjecture. Father Time remains undefeated. While Egypt and China can trace their history back nearly to the beginning of civilization, These two core societies experienced multiple collapses with civilization-altering consequences for the people who called them home. Consider famous Egyptian rulers. Likely, you don't have to go too far down your list to reach Cleopatra, who of course was Macedonian, not Egyptian. I've always tried to explain thoughtfully to my students that the American experiment will at some point come to an end. As far as civilizations go, we are still in our infancy compared to some of the great civilizations of our world. The United States, as an institution, is roughly 245 years old. It feels impossible to imagine a decline for the world's superpower, but the Romans at one point also believed they were without equal. Their civilization crumbled after 499 years, double the length of current American history. The record, of course, belongs to the Byzantine Empire, an offshoot survivor of the collapse of Rome, which held on for a remarkable 1,123 years. I certainly hope my own nation can break records, but the future is unknowable. As I watched that Loki episode, I couldn't help but wonder what was going on in the minds of those fictional characters watching their world collapse. Whether it's a slow decay or a sudden shift, all things must end. This idea brings us to our main topic today, as we have the luxury of examining it through numerous first-hand accounts of those unfortunate enough to witness the sudden fall of their civilization after the Mongols arrived in the Middle East. The Muslim inhabitants universally turned to God for answers, but Genghis Khan dismissed their prayers literally asking his religious captives why their God wasn't stopping him. In fact, he went further and blamed his victims, reportedly telling them, I am the punishment of God. If you hadn't committed great sins, God would not have sent a punishment like me upon you. God's punisher was already an old man by this point. While the Mongols were setting up an efficient bureaucracy that utilized scribes from the conquered peoples of the Uyghurs, Chinese, and Koreans, they hadn't quite figured out social security yet. Still, at the age of 58, one might imagine that the Khan of Khans could comfortably retire during his twilight years. After all, as he proclaimed in his words and actions, he hated luxury and instead exercised moderation. One notable exception to Temujin's life of moderation was in The Revenge Game. If I could go back and give advice to the Great Khan, it would probably be to follow the wisdom of British poet George Erber, who stated that living well is the best revenge. Unfortunately, Temujin would be more likely to side with the Swedish poet Stieg Larsson, who believed that exacting revenge for yourself or your friends is not only a right, it's an absolute duty. In 1217, Temujin was able to serve that so-called best dish cold, and the world would never be the same. The Khan had fully embraced his new nickname. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon Mongolia's most notorious conqueror, Genghis Khan. Episode number four, The Scourge of God. While the majority of this episode will focus on the Khan's campaign against the Charismian Shah, there was one kingdom wedged between East Asia and the Middle East that served as a pit stop along the way. Kara Katai was the fourth of the 12th century states that make up what is now China. Around 1211, Katai experienced a revolutionary upheaval. Bankrupt from continuous war with the Jinn in the east and Mohammed, the Krismian Shah from the west, the leader of Qatai was forced to raise taxes on his subjects. They didn't take this decision well, and at one point proceeded to lock their own leader out of the city of Balasquan. Dulugi, the leader, was forced to break into his own city utilizing a herd of highly trained war elephants. Things didn't improve for him once he was inside. Angry at the town's actions, he exacted revenge, slaughtering 47,000 residents, the city's entire population. This opened the door for Kulag, formerly of the Naiman, a tribe that had been forced to flee the steppe during Genghis Khan's war to unify the Mongol nation. He seized power over Katai and made a peace deal with Shah Muhammad to split the kingdom, with himself holding sway over the eastern portion. News of the Naiman's new realm eventually reached the ears of the steppe people. Although there are few examples of those who got away, Genghis Khan was not one to ever forget an enemy. If the leader of the Naiman had remained living a quiet life, he likely would have escaped the notice of the Mongols who were at the moment bogged down in their attempts to conquer the Jin. But like most leaders who have fallen out of power, he couldn't remain in the background. He spent his second chance embracing the life of a religious fanatic. By merging Buddhism and Nestorian Christianity, he ran afoul of the majority Muslim population that made up the residents living on his land. As they did to the previous ruler, they rose up against him, and once again he responded against them with appalling violence. In one horrifically insensitive incident, he crucified the Iman of Khotan on the door of the cleric's own school. His subjects likely agreed with the nickname that the Mongols had chosen for his kingdom, the Black Khotan. As mentioned in our previous episode, the Mongols didn't launch attacks indiscriminately. They followed a meticulous process to justify the war to their people and their gods. The official reason for this invasion was an attack by the Black Catan against one of the Khan's vassals. The man's son and wife then appealed to Temujin to honor the ancient step code of vengeance. To this, there could be no answer but yes. The task fell initially to Jebe the Arrow, whose 30,000 assigned men easily won a handful of battles against the Catan and swiftly took the capital city. They then turned south towards the northeastern portion of what is today Afghanistan and southern Tajikistan, in an effort to capture the black Catan's leader. The honor, however, belonged to local hunters who captured him and handed him over for execution. At this moment in history, Genghis Khan, who was heavily outnumbered in each instance, was successfully fighting on three major fronts, with Macquarie in China, Jebe in Katai, and Jochi and Subadai attacking what remained of the Merkit. It was this third offensive that resulted in the first contact between the Shah and the Khan, Mohammed had sent soldiers north to remove the retreating Merkit from his territory. The Mongols, however, arrived first and annihilated their enemy. Jochi, the Khan's firstborn, opened negotiations upon the Shah's arrival, asking for peaceful passage home, while explaining that his father Genghis had explicitly ordered him not to fight anyone besides the Merkit. The Shah ignored Jochi's pleas for peace, and for a day the two forces fought to a standstill, which wasn't a good sign for the Shah as the Mongols were outnumbered three to one. At night, the warriors of the steppe set their fires and then slipped away into the darkness. When Genghis heard the reports of the encounter, he shook it off and decided to exchange diplomatic envoys with the Shah rather than become bogged down in another war. With the war against the Jinn already in full swing, the Mongols were in a mood to wrap up wars, rather than start new ones. Diplomatic efforts commenced, with the Mongols hosting an ambassador named Baha. The encounter, however, was rife with misunderstandings. First, the Muslims brought gifts of silk and cotton. Genghis reportedly asked his confidants, Does this man imagine that we've never seen stuff like this? The Mongols sought trade access to the Middle East's finest goods, namely glass and steel. Silk was from northern China, a region that was currently 70% under the control of the Khan. The second misunderstanding arose due to a translation error. Temujin expressed his desire for peace by attempting to divide the known world with the Shah. He told them that he was the sovereign of the sunrise, meaning the East, while the Shah was the sovereign of the Sunset, or the West. Baha returned to his master and claimed that this had been intended as an insult, interpreting the line as the Mongols claiming to be the world's rising power, while the Shah sat at the seat of the world's waning power. As a cherry on top, the Khan's top two Islamic diplomats concluded their message of peace by repeating Genghis's parting words, "my son," the Shah, already harboring a chosen child of God complex, grew furious at the thought of Genghis considering him a child beneath the Khan. Soon after this episode, a Mongol trade caravan of Muslim merchants, along with a personal envoy of Temujin, arrived in the Shah's territory. This was intended as a method to formally cement the mutually beneficial alliance. If there was an Achilles heel for Shah Muhammad, it was his inability to control his own people. He had previously failed to prevent his soldiers from engaging Jochi and Subadai in battle. His diplomats managed to turn compliments into insults, and in this newest instance, he couldn't stop his relatives from attacking the Mongols' trading caravan. It's essential to note that both traders and diplomatic envoys were considered untouchable to the Mongols, holding privileged positions that demanded the utmost respect. The governor at fault for the assault was related to Shah Mohammed, He inappropriately seized the caravan and its goods, executing all but one of its 550 members. The lone survivor was a camel driver taking a bath at the precise moment the massacre began. He successfully hid for three days and nights before finding a way to report back the hideous details of the encounter. The governor's defense was a claim that the entire merchant train had been part of a Mongolian espionage mission. While it is entirely possible and likely the spies were embedded among the crew, it is clear that the Khan was seeking a partner rather than a new enemy. Once again, the Khan showed incredible restraint in the face of what was a grave insult. He was willing to let the offense go if the Shah handed the offending governor over to the Mongols for trial and execution. The collapse of civilizations typically results from a cascade effect based on a series of poor decisions over long periods of time. Every once in a while, however, you can identify one precise moment that could have prevented the existential crisis. This was one of those instances. Muhammad could have acted to save his people. Instead, he acted impulsively and beheaded the lead diplomat sent to arrest the governor. We know this because the Shah's next action was to shave the heads of the two remaining diplomats, before then singeing off their beards and sending them home. The surviving diplomats returned to the Khan and patiently awaited for Genghis to descend from the mountain, where he had chosen to pray to the Eternal Blue Sky for advice on the matter. In the interim, the Charismian Shah finally thought to ask about the capabilities of the foreigners that he had chosen to insult. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall the moment he was informed of the formidable military might of the Mongols. In a way-too-late attempt, he sent a message claiming that he had never authorized the massacre of the caravan. Temujin's response read, "'You kill my men and my merchants?' and you take from them my property? Prepare for war, for I am coming against you with a host you cannot withstand. Despite his last-minute attempt to avert war, the Shah was confident in his seemingly advantageous position. Muhammad believed he held all the cards incorrectly assuming that the Mongols would face significant challenges traversing vast mountainous terrain to invade. Additionally, his people possessed heavily fortified cities, defended by forces outnumbering the Mongols at least two to one. However, in reality, this war was equivalent to Temujin taking candy from a baby. The Shah's kingdom was in its infancy, established only two years prior. The Khan suspected that at the first signs of trouble, different ethnic factions would fracture and prioritize their individual security. As for the walled cities, the Mongols had mastered siege warfare thanks to an abundance of Chinese engineers that had been absorbed into their forces. Positive stories from the Khan's short rule over the Katai highlighting religious tolerance, also crossed the border. This made it impossible for the Shah to rally his people around their religion, as the Mongols were not perceived as a direct threat to Islam, a crucial factor in driving off outside invaders in prior Middle Eastern civilizations. The Shah's own son was the empire's lone talented general. Despite this, however, the ruling family was nowhere near united. Muhammad's mother issued competing orders in territories loyal to her rule, and her intense dislike for her militarily talented grandson confined him to the distant portion of governor of Afghanistan rather than the commander of the Shah's armed forces. None of the Shah's other generals were up to the challenge that the Mongols represented. As Abraham Lincoln mused, a house divided cannot stand. Genghis's spy network easily infiltrated the fractured court, even planting a rumor that the queen mother intended to betray her son and seize the throne for herself, further widening the political cracks in the kingdom. Through this espionage, the Mongols quickly realized that their opponent's defensive strategy was full of contradictions. On one hand, the Shah's forces aimed to strike the Mongols when they emerged from crossing the mountains. Their weakest point, and take advantage of favorable terrain to lie in wait. But the second part of their strategy was to maintain garrisons in their cities and let the walls do the work for them. These were both individually excellent ideas, but they don't work in concert with each other. In order to take advantage of the terrain, the Muslims would have to leave the cities to meet them at the mouth of the mountains. Faced with the contradiction, they hesitated in their cities, feeling safe upon gazing at the heights of the walls that ringed their cities. After all, walls had always defeated steppe horsemen. It's common practice to defend the necessity of the study of history by pointing out that the best predictor of the future is a study of the past but keep in mind that Genghis Khan was always the exception. The Muslims believed that the Mongols would emerge from the most obvious path, so they placed sentries and planned to only leave the safety of their cities once they knew the enemy was on the way. Showcasing the Mongols' ability for meticulous planning, it was precisely two years after the massacre of the caravan at Otrar, when the Mongols finally struck. Jebe and Jochi led 30,000 men through the previously unknown northern pass through the Altai Mountains. It wasn't a walk in the park. The steppe warriors rode through snow that at times was five to six feet deep. With so many troops, they were unable to rely on hunting and therefore had to often drink the blood of their horses so that they could fool their hunger pains away they landed in Fergana, the commercial jewel of the region. This wealthy land produced gold, silver, and turquoise, and was supported by abundant rice fields, orchards, and vineyards. The Mongols had emerged through the mountain pass and were then allowed to leisurely raid, rest, and restock. The Shah's generals encouraged him to retreat in order to gain enough time to reset his strategy. The Mongols had arrived in a location they had not expected, throwing all their plans into disarray. The bulk of their advice was to retreat to Afghanistan, creating an impenetrable wall of soldiers between their kingdom and the invaders. Muhammad had other ideas, however he claimed that God had personally spoken to him, ultimately advising him to attack for Ghana. Like most leaders who claim a mandate from God, I suspect that he made up this conversation. Anyone, particularly Allah, should have seen that the ensuing fight should never have occurred. Muhammad, however, wasn't the only one ignoring the orders of the experts. Jebe, the general in charge at this point, sought to strategically retreat from Fergana. He would lead the Shah's forces further north and away from his cities. This was the intended role of this initial force. They were merely a diversion from the main forces that were still coming. Jochi, the firstborn son of Temujin, overruled Jebei, however, and ordered the Mongols to engage the Shah's forces. As was typical, the Mongols were outnumbered two to one. Once again, they more than held their own. Some reports indicate that Mohammed was just moments away from being captured, an action that had the potential to end the war before it had really begun. Twice now, he had been embarrassed by a significantly smaller force led by Jochi. This resulted in him internalizing that he couldn't beat the Mongols in open battle. Thus, they would return to the cities and let the walls of civilization defeat the barbarians. This was the exact opposite effect from what the Mongols had intended. Still, it would only serve to prolong the inevitable, as the mobility of the Mongols made this strategy foolhardy at best. Their horsemen seemed to be able to materialize at will, almost as if they were teleporting, They consistently arrived through lands that had long been considered impassable, and they managed it much faster than any army reasonably should have been able to. This ability to appear at will meant that the Shah was forced to spread out his forces to every city in the kingdom, thus negating his force superiority. The Mongols, on the other hand, were able to concentrate their forces, and bring them all to bear against an individual city of their choosing. In other words, they would be allowed to pick off each city one by one. But they would need more than 30,000 troops to accomplish the task. Despite the setback at Fergana, the Shah's confidence was rising after seeing such a small force arrayed against him. Regrettably for the Muslims, Jebe's armies were just a diversion. The real force arrived through the Zungarian Gate in May of 1219, with Genghis Khan personally at its head and Subadai acting as his chief of staff for the duration of this war. We possess significantly more information regarding this war than the conflict against the Jin Chinese. This was largely because of how advanced the Shah's people were. While their kingdom was young, the civilization was ancient, combining portions of prior Arab, Turkic, and Persian civilizations. It had withstood the test of time, and its pride made it impossible to recognize the threat that faced them. During this period of history, the Middle East was the center of the world's academia, boasting the world's highest literacy rates, foremost mathematicians, and the world's greatest linguists. Historian Jack Weatherford points out that because they ranked so high above the rest of the world, they had the farthest to fall. Unfortunately, more information doesn't necessarily mean correct information. Estimates of the Khan's forces in the historical record range between 800,000 to a measly 80,000. British historian Frank McLynn puts the true number of their forces at 120,000, which included Jebe's 30,000-strong diversionary force. They attempted to multiply those numbers by calling in reinforcements from the Tangrut in western China. Seizing this moment of distraction as their opportunity to break free of the Khan, the Tangroot refused to send troops. They would later pay the ultimate price for this disloyalty. Not wanting to forget the slight, but unable to do anything about it at the moment, the Khan ordered an aide to remind him each and every day at both noon and dusk that the Tangroot had betrayed him. The Khan's son Shagatai was sent ahead of the main force to oversee the construction of 48 timber bridges, each wide enough for two heavy carts to drive across side by side. The Mongols were clearly prepared for the terrain ahead. The Shah's efforts at slowing them down proved futile, as they continued to hide behind their walls. Symbolically, Otrar, the site of the caravan massacre, was the first of Genghis's targets. Instead of personally leading the attack, he took a small side army and hid it along the road to the capital. The Mongols proceeded to slowly and methodically set up the siege of Otrar, hoping to lure the Shah into marching out of his capital to relieve the siege. They intentionally left their back exposed anticipating that Muhammad would falsely assume he could trap the Mongols between his forces and the city's defenders. If he had taken the bait, the war might have ended in one glorious battle, with the Khan's side forces emerging from hiding to spring the trap. Muhammad, however, lacked confidence in the field and had too much faith in the city's defense. The Mongols maintained their subterfuge for two months, Pretending that they were incapable of taking the city. Their patience eventually ended, and the Chinese trebuchets emerged from hiding, along with armored horses and chain armored mules pulling massive battering rams. Shockingly, Otrar still managed to hold on for five months. It would have likely lasted longer, but some civilians sensed the inevitable and promptly deserted by opening a side gate to let the attackers in. The governor, the man responsible for the caravan massacre, retreated inward to a fortified citadel, which successfully delayed the Mongols by another month. The last moments of fighting involved the defenders throwing tiles at their enemy, as they had exhausted all other weapons. Faced with such unyieldy resistance, the Mongols eventually mined the keep and dragged a still living governor from the rubble. The exact details of the governor's death, who had started all of this with his unwarranted seizure of the caravan, are not known, but one story survives to claim that the Khan poured molten silver into his eyes. The city was razed to the ground and never rebuilt. Instead of immediately heading to the capital, the generals split up at this point to utilize their mobility to destroy town after town. Jebe struck south of the river Zurfashan, and Jochi endeavored north. The city of Sinak was the first to fall. Its residents had repeated the Shah's mistake of murdering Jochi's envoy. The Khan's son responded with a seven day assault followed by the butchering of the city's entire population. As Plutarch pointed out, dead men don't bite. The next town, Gend, got the message and promptly surrendered without a fight. They even peacefully evacuated the city so the Mongols could spend three days looting it in peace. The conquest continued methodically in this manner through seven more towns and cities. Meanwhile, Genghis took a portion of the army, estimated at 40,000 strong, and disappeared into the kizil desert. He used this forbidding geographical feature to disguise his plan to strike out at the fortress city of Zanuk and the holy city of Nur. The Khan's leniency towards the deeply religious citizens of Nur showed that he was intelligent enough to avoid falling into the trap of unintentionally triggering a jihad. When one considers the success that his generals were having, it may appear odd to have risked his men by entering the unforgiving desert. Basil Liddell Hart, the famous military historian and noted admirer of the Khan, explained it in this way. In strategy, the longest way round is often the shortest way there. A direct approach to the object exhausts the attacker and hardens the resistance by compression whereas an indirect approach loosens the defender's hold by upsetting his balance. The profoundest truth of war is that the issue of battle is decided in the minds of the opposing commanders, not in the bodies of their men. The city of Bukhara was the next target lined up. Shah Muhammad had left a strong garrison in the city and losing it would mean that his position would become hopelessly encircled by his enemies. Bukhara, the sister city to the capital, was one of the largest in the world, and known for its love of scholarship. It had a great wall that enclosed the entire city. Within those walls it had its own walled citadel, and then an inner town with its own wall and seven gates. Most impressively, the city had a fantastic irrigation system that brought water from the main canal to all parts of the city. Historian Frank McLinn writes that, theoretically, Bukhara should have been impenetrable. But the Khan had already implanted spies within the city, and he sought to widen a pre-existing open wound that would serve to crack open the city A few years earlier, artisans had nearly overthrown the elites that ruled within the metropolis. Knowing that the rich elites remained incredibly unpopular, the Khan's plan was to encourage the slum dwellers to commit an uprising, along with the remaining disgruntled artisans. The siege of the Outer Walls lasted a mere 12 days. Prisoners from other cities were placed in front of the Khan's forces to serve as arrow catchers. Knowing that defeat was at hand and facing trouble from the increasing unrest that was spreading among the poor, the commander attempted a daring nighttime raid, but his 20,000 men were annihilated in the process. 400 elites remained in the inner citadel for the next 11 days, but the Mongols were able to fill the outer moat and destroyed the walls with catapults. The elite's dogged resistance made it clear in the mind of the Khan that an example had to be made. He brought forth and tortured the rich citizens of Bukhara to discover where they hid their money. He then forced people of all ranks to leave the city with only the clothes on their back. The one exception were the young The young women were horrifically subjected to mass rape by the soldiers, while the young men were conscripted to serve as human shields for the next conquest. The assault came to an end only after fire engulfed the city. So great was the destruction that the Islamic historian Ibn Battu came upon Bukhara nearly 100 years after the destruction, and remarked that it appeared as if it had only happened a year earlier. The Shah had anticipated the Mongols to attack from the east, expecting them to come as though from China. The planned defense of his capital, Sumarkin, hinged on reinforcements arriving from the now-destroyed city of Bukhara. However, Genghis Khan once again defied expectations. Sumarkhan, the capital, was described as a beautiful city, with traversable canals, major bazaars, and parks containing man-made lakes. The city walls were believed to be impenetrable. In the year leading up to the Mongol invasion, much of the Shah's kingdom, including the capital, had been on the verge of rebellion. Now facing an enormous Mongol force led by Genghis Khan and his sons Ogadai and Shagatai, the city of Sumarkand found itself in a dire situation. The combined might of the Mongol forces was so overwhelming that even a reserve unit initially dedicated to defending the Shah abandoned the cause upon witnessing the forces assembled outside the city. The siege of Sumarkand loomed, and the city's fate hung in the balance. The pivotal moment in the Siege of Sumarkhan occurred when the defenders broke out from behind the city walls, believing they were routing the attackers. In reality, they were fighting against the human shields and others who had been compelled to join the Mongols under the penalty of death. As the defenders charged out of the massive city gates, the Shah's two dozen war elephants joined the fray. However, a carefully concealed Mongol ambush, cleverly set and expertly sprung, led to the slaughter of the elephants and the 20,000 defenders. Despite the Khan's promise to spare those who surrendered, mass slaughter ensued. Genghis Khan, perceiving the Shah's people as lacking honor, felt no obligation to uphold his own word. Artisans and craftsmen were dragged away into slavery, sent to ply their trade in Inner Mongolia. Young males were drafted to replace the lost human shields, and women were subjected to sexual assault. Out of the 100,000 inhabitants of the capital, only 25,000 survived its fall. While the city itself was spared... Genghis Khan assigned a Catan bureaucrat and Chinese civil servants to rebuild it. Subsequently, the city became the capital for another great conqueror in history, Tamberlin. Deprived of his capital city, Shah Muhammad found himself on the run, attempting multiple times to put distance between himself and his pursuers. The Mongols, using rafts, crossed the Dara River, surprising their enemies who had underestimated their strategic capabilities. Despite expectations that the Mongols would be perplexed by the 1,550-mile-long river, early reconnaissance had meticulously gathered information about the river, and the Mongols navigated it as planned, leaving their enemies in a state of disbelief. What appeared as chaos to the Muslims had all been planned for by the Mongols. To safely cross the Amudara River, the Mongols first had to eliminate the city of Termez on the north bank. Genghis Khan assigned his sons Jochi and Shagatai to capture the city within 48 hours. However, after 11 days and significant casualties, Subadai, the supreme commander, was sent to check on the delay. The sun's quarreling had once again hindered the mission. Termez featured a fierce street-by-street defense by the defenders. The Mongols overcame this resistance by launching jars of burning oil at houses that proved difficult to take. Additionally, a woman in the city attempted to save her life by promising a gigantic pearl if spared. When asked about its location, she claimed to have swallowed it. The Mongols, suspecting others of using the same strategy, promptly cut her open, retrieved the pearl, and adopted a gruesome strategy of eviscerating individuals across the battlefields. Once the Mongols crossed the river, Shah Muhammad's chances of survival dwindled. Despite his claims of being able to communicate with God, he advised individuals to look to their own salvation. Ignoring his son's advice to stand and fight, he continued to flee from the Mongols. His failure to halt the Mongolian pearl-hunting disembowelment campaign turned the people further against him, leading to increased internal strife. Warlords began carving out their own territories, and Afghanistan's leader sought alliances with Genghis Khan to plan an ambush that nearly captured the Shah. With no place left to hide, the final stages of the hunt were now underway. Jebe received command of 20,000 men with explicit orders to pursue the Shah, even if he had to climb to the sky to do so. Focusing solely on self-preservation, Muhammad ordered citizens in the lands he passed through to destroy their own crops and burn their cities to impede his pursuers. However, the evidence suggests that these orders were summarily ignored, especially in small towns that did not resist. Jebe, in fast pursuit of the Shah, covered 450 miles in five days, reaching Nishapur only one day after Mohammed had fled from its walls, a distance equivalent to driving from Virginia Beach to New York City. Nishapur received the Mongol demand of surrender without a fight, failed to heed the warning. Despite expectations of a murderous response, Jebe adhered strictly to his orders and bypassed both Nishapur and Merv for the moment. At this point, Subadai, the supreme commander for the war, shifted his role and became Jebe's second in command for the mission. There were no egos in the Khan's army and if Jebe was better suited for the task, Subadai willingly took a back seat. However, they lost the Shah's trail at this point, prompting them to split up and cover another 450 miles. Despite the setback, Subadai kept the larger war objective in mind and sacked multiple cities in their attempt to find the Shah. They captured Mohammed's mother after a 15-day siege and sent her to the Great Khan. Any male children of the Shah discovered were put to death, and his daughters were distributed as property to the Khan's son, Shagatai, and some senior Mongol officers. The last hope for the Charismian Shah was to flee and seek protection from the Caliphate of Baghdad in Iraq. 330 miles outside of Baghdad, the Mongol pursuers unwittingly stumbled upon the Shah. Broken by the events of the last year, Muhammad was mistaken for a column of refugees by Jebe's forces. Despite thinking they were refugees, Jebe's troops unleashed a shower of arrows, inflicting heavy damage before moving on to continue their pursuit. Unbeknownst to them, they had nearly ended the war as Muhammad's horse was wounded in the encounter. After learning that he was nearby, the cat-and-mouse game began anew. The Mongols besieged the city of Karun, located in modern-day Iran, 4,000 miles from the Mongolian steppes. One day into the operation, implanted spies revealed that Muhammad had slipped out of the back of the city. Jebe abandoned the siege to follow the trail. Muhammad had just made it to a barge on the Caspian Sea, barely ahead of the Mongols, who had locked arrows on the leader of one of the world's largest empires. Muhammad managed to reach that barge because of the complete and absolute sacrifice of his entire rear guard. Once again, though, the sea did not stop the pursuit. Jebe chased him from island to island until the events of the past two years, finally overtook his prey. The Charismian Shah, overcome with illness, died on January 10, 1221. He was buried and entered into his eternal rest peacefully, at least for a few days. When the Mongols were informed of the gravesite, they dug up the body, verified that it was the Shah, and then burned it. However, the death of one leader is not the end of this story of vengeance. As Confucius wisely stated, one who seeks revenge ought to start by digging two graves. In fact, in history, there are a number of notable examples where the fighting continued after the war was officially over. Andrew Jackson became a national hero after winning the Battle of New Orleans, two weeks after the British had surrendered. 2,000 citizens and three generals lost their lives because of Old Hickory's continuation of the war, as it seemed that the hero of New Orleans had traveled faster than the news. American General Sterling Price heard the news about the Treaty of Hidalgo, which subsequently ended the Mexican-American War. He just didn't believe it. The result was the sacking of the city of Chihuahua a month after peace had been agreed upon. In my opinion, however, the greatest story regarding fighting after the war was over belongs to a handful of Japanese soldiers from World War II. Of particular note is the story about Hiro Nodo, who was stationed in Indonesia on orders from the Emperor. Although the war ended in 1945, Mr. Nodo remained fighting his own personal guerrilla war until 1974. Although he had heard rumors about the Armatus, he had believed it to be Allied propaganda. He finally gave up his arms, 27 years after the end of war, and only after his commanding officer was brought out of retirement and flown to him so that he could order him to personally stand down. He still had 500 rounds of ammunition and several hand grenades. Jebe and Subadai, entrusted with the relentless pursuit of the fleeing Shah Muhammad, were the tip of the Mongol spear during this critical period. While they tirelessly tracked the elusive Shah, the great Khan, Temujin, displayed his strategic prowess by orchestrating a devastating campaign that cast a dark shadow over the year 1221. Initially conceived as a punitive expedition against the Shah, the mission underwent a profound transformation, evolving into a sweeping initiative of colonial expansion. Despite not personally engaging in the pursuit, Temujin remained actively involved in the broader military strategy. The Mongol conquest, driven by a thirst for vengeance, evolved into a more expansive ambition setting the stage for the Mongol Empire's imperialistic endeavors. The events of 1221 reflected not only the personal vendetta against the Shah, but also the Mongols' larger vision of territorial conquest and dominance. This strategic shift signaled a departure from the initial mission's narrow focus on retribution and retaliation, instead revealing the Mongols' intent to establish a far-reaching empire with Temujin at the helm orchestrating campaigns of destruction and expansion. As Jebe and Subadai relentlessly pursued the fleeing Shah, the broader Mongol forces, guided by Temujin's vision, left an indelible mark on history during this tumultuous period. The Mongol conquest, however, faced internal tensions that came to a head between two of Temujin's sons, Jochi and Shagatai, as the unintended consequences of promising conquered lands as inheritance triggered a significant shift in strategy for one of the Mongol commanders. Jochi, cognizant of the fact that these lands would become part of his territory, adopted a more lenient approach during conquests. Departing from the initial emphasis on revenge, he instead embraced a strategy focused on winning hearts and minds. However, this pragmatic shift, especially evident during sieges, created concerns, particularly for his younger brother Shagatai. Within the well-oiled machinery of the Mongol war apparatus, each conquest was viewed as a stepping stone towards larger objectives. Jochi's hesitation, notably during the siege of Gurganj, became unacceptable to his father Temujin. Shagatai, dispatched as backup, found himself embroiled in the long-standing animosity between Jochi and his brothers. A wrestling match unfolded in front of their troops, witnessed by Boruchu, one of the Khan's earliest followers, leading to both brothers facing a reduction in their leadership roles. This incident fueled Jochi's resentment towards his father Temujin. The siege of Gurganj, initially intended by Jochi to spare the city, ultimately concluded in a brutal massacre. While medieval chroniclers spread accounts of each Mongol being assigned the task of murdering 24 people, modern scholars question the accuracy of this narrative. Regardless, there is a consensus that the two brothers subjected female captives to a gruesome spectacle, compelling them to strip naked and fight each other. The twisted blood sport culminated in the Mongols executing all the women, underscoring the complex and brutal nature of the Mongol conquests. The wave of slaughter extended beyond the immediate conquests, as Genghis Khan's sons sought external targets to vent their internal frustration. Genghis, already frustrated with his biological sons, suffered the loss of his favorite son-in-law during the siege of Nishapur. Enraged by this news, he went to sleep expressing his determination to make Nishapur pay dearly for the inflicted loss. His mood darkened further upon waking, learning that Shagatai and Jochi had appropriated all the loot from Gurganj, denying him his rightful share. This act, a direct violation of the Yasa, or the Code of Laws, of the Mongols, was a clear sign of disrespect for his role as great chief, triggering thoughts of executing all involved, including his own children. It took persuasion to dissuade him from such extreme measures as he stewed outside the walls of Nishapur. Despite the unbridled vengeance brewing within Genghis, He recognized that Merv had to fall before delivering a death blow to Nishapur. Merv, one of the largest cities in the world at the time with nearly 200,000 inhabitants, stood confidently along the Silk Road. It had earlier rejected peace terms with Jebe and Subadai's forces. Now it was Merv's turn to face destruction. Tulu, Genghis Khan's fourth son and the future father of Monke and Kublai Khan, assumed command of the sacking. In an attempt to minimize casualties among his men, he resorted to subterfuge. Tulu first employed the traditional dogfight tactic to lure out and destroy a 10,000-man force. Subsequently, he announced to the city that everyone had the opportunity to leave. Reading off the names of the 200 wealthiest men in the city supplied by the Khan spies, Tulu promised them special treatment as elites. In a grim turn of events, Tulu, seated on a golden chair, ordered mass execution after the exodus. Every person who had left the city was slain, with the soldiers from the garrison being beheaded. Allegedly, each Mongol had a quota of four killings to fulfill. The massacre, lasting over four days and nights, according to one report, was followed by the torture of the 200 plutocrats to extract information about the whereabouts of their wealth. Merv fell victim to the insatiable greed of the Mongols as they sought to plunder its riches. The renowned irrigation system was dismantled and the turquoise mausoleum housing the remains of the famed Sultan Shanjar was torn down and looted. The sacking of Merv marked a significant shift in the war. While the Mongols had initially sought to restore their honor in the Middle East, their actions now portrayed them as dishonorable marauders driven by greed. This phase of the conflict highlighted the steppe people's evolving perception of raiding and trade as intertwined concepts. The repercussions of the sack of Merv were unforeseeable, as a clan of Turkish pastoralists witnessing the brutality fled west to distance themselves from the Mongols. This group later founded the Ottoman dynasty, a powerful civilization that endured for an impressive 600 years. Talu continued his ruthless campaign, killing 70,000 more in the city of Nisa on the way to Nishapur, where his father awaited, the scourge of God impatiently ready for the conquest. Nishapur, the greatest city in Iran, boasted a population of 170,000 and had suffered destruction multiple times before, once at the hands of the Turks and more recently due to a violent earthquake. The Battle of Nishapur unfolded over a mere three days, showcasing a stark contrast in military technologies. The well-fortified city boasted 3,000 javelin-throwing balliste and at least 500 catapults. The Mongols, now well-seasoned in siege warfare, countered with 300 catapults, and 700 trebuchets. Their multi-directional assault breached the walls in 64 locations on the first night. Death squads led by the Khan's daughter infiltrated the city, ensuring no survivors by verifying each killing through beheading. Similar to prior conquests, only the traditional 400 artisans were spared, taken as slaves. Reports suggest that the daughter sought vengeance for her husband's death, although Genghis Khan needed little encouragement. Muslim chroniclers detailed the gruesome display of human skulls piled by the Mongols and even recorded the slaughter of every cat and dog in the city. Nearby towns met a similar fate, with Tabriz spared as a gesture of appreciation. The city's leaders had sent the Mongols a special ointment to alleviate insect bites that had bothered the steppe warriors. Herat, a significant Afghan city, witnessed the death of all 12,000 of its soldiers, marking the beginning of the Khan's campaign in Afghanistan, a region often referred to as the Graveyard of Empires given its historical resistance to conquest by figures such as Alexander the Great, Tamberlain, the British Empire, the Soviet Union, and the United States. The U.S. has just begun its long-awaited pullout from Afghanistan. Two nights ago, it was revealed that we left Bagram Air Base, one of our most impressive strongholds in the middle of the night. Within 24 hours, the Taliban, the group that granted safe harbor to Osama bin Laden, had already overrun the base. Although we are going to be able to avoid the massacre that the British Empire suffered upon its troop withdrawal, history is likely to remember Afghanistan as an overall defeat for the United States' hopes for the region. Genghis Khan, however, is the exception of all of these historical rules. In the Afghan campaign, Genghis Khan targeted Talakan, a city with massive walls that resisted for six months. The Mongols ingeniously employed local slave labor to construct an earthen rampart, matching the height of the defenders' walls. Riding their horses up the ramp, the Mongols breached the walls and seized the city. Tragedy struck in Bamayan, when the Khan's grandson was killed. Genghis, in response, issued a ruthless decree. Not a single living creature should be spared. His men interpreted this command literally, extending the massacre even to reptiles and unborn fetuses. Bamayan earned a sinister reputation as the accursed town, remaining uninhabited for years. The world's response to these brutal conquests varied. Despite the atrocities, there was a lack of strong arguments for jihad among Muslims, preventing a unified Middle Eastern resistance and sparing Shah Muhammad. Surprisingly, some Sufis focusing on the mystical aspects of Islam supported the Khan's conquest, viewing it as a divine punishment for the Charismians' attachment to wealth. Christians, with a history of crusades in the Middle East, celebrated the news, even though their intelligence about a figure named Prester John was unclear. Assuming him to be a Christian at war with Muslims, the Europeans embraced the Mongol victories without fully understanding their nature. As the Mongols satisfied their thirst for vengeance... Genghis Khan found himself at the helm of an empire that spanned from the Pacific to the Caspian Sea, covering regions from Korea to the Caucasus and from Siberia to the Yellow River. The once mighty civilization of the Charisman Shah was extinguished from the world, never to recover. Their swift and unpredictable demise came at the hands of a barbarian, who had initially sought to be their trade partner. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you'd like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.